Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to a special holiday edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I hope you're enjoying your holidays. Uh, we have a special, special, special interview uh, today for our holiday edition. You know how we climb deep into the minds of Shamika Michelle and her backstory and Royce White. Uh, well, now we're going to climb deep into the mind and backstory of the smartest man on the show, uh, Delano Squires, who we playfully call Professor D. He's actually not a professor, uh, but we'll let Delano explain what he is, what he does, and kind of where he came from and how he bec became uh, the smartest man on this show, which, you know, <laughs> some people take and Delano takes as huge praise, but actually we're calling him the skinniest guy at fat camp. Uh, <laughs> being smarter than me and Uncle Jimmy, I don't know if that's something to brag about. But anyway, he is certainly uh, the smartest man on this show, says very profound things on this show. And so I want to get to know Delano a little bit better. And so do you. I, I know a lot of Delano's backstory, but I want to share it with you all. So Delano, uh, welcome to this special edition, holiday edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock, and, and let's talk about Delano Squires, and let's start at the very beginning. Uh, mm. I, I think I heard you talk right before the holiday break about maybe your family's from Barbados, and maybe were you born in Barbados and then came here, or anyway, walk us through the first, I don't know, three to five years of your life. Sure. Um, so yes, I, I was born in Barbados, actually, my, my mom came to the United States first. Um, I think she was about 16. She came in the late 70s. Uh, we had some relatives living here, an aunt who, who lived here. Um, and her and my dad had, had dated in Barbados and they ended up getting married fairly young. Um, I think she, my mom might've been about 21. My dad been about 24. And um, I was born basically nine months after they got married. and. My mom happened to be, you know, in, in Barbados at that time. So I was I was born there at Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Um, and if anyone was following the news recently, they know Barbados just became a republic um, after close to about 400 years of um, British rule. Since 1966, six, the country has been independent technically, but the Queen of England was still the head of state. So yeah, so I was born there, spent first, I don't know, two, three months of my life there. And then my parents came back to the States and um, I was raised entirely in New York. I was actually naturalized at three. Um, I, I saw the, the certificate and that's one of the pictures when I was younger, but um, I, I was naturalized in an American flag sweater and which is kind of cool. 
and I'm not sure if my my mom did that, you know, purposely purposely, but um, it's a it's a cool historical note for me. So yeah, so you know, my first three to five years, we we live with my mom's older sister, um, not her oldest, because my mother is the youngest of ten siblings, and uh, one of my aunts came here again, sometime I want to say in the 70s, and uh, put down roots in Queens, in a neighborhood called Rosedale, which used to be a working class Irish and ethnic and Italian neighborhood. Excuse me. Um, it was actually. Uh, it, it was covered a little bit or some clips of Rosedale came up a little bit last year when they were showing some of the tensions between some of the newer black residents who were moving in at the time where the community was still, you know, entirely um, Irish and, and Italian. And then some of it got pretty ugly, you know, sort of in terms of the, the, the racial um, incidents got pretty ugly. But I think by the time my some of my older cousins came along, um, some of that stuff had already moved. So, and I, I didn't see any of it growing up in that neighborhood. So, so yeah, so my parents, we lived with my aunt for the first couple of years. Then my parents moved, got our own apartment and they got another apartment, you know, when I was younger. And by the time my sister, my younger sister came along and she's nine years younger than I am, my parents had purchased a house, uh, still in Rosedale, but maybe about a 15 minute walk from where my aunt was. So the early part of my life, was filled with a lot of family. Um, as I said, my mom is youngest of 10. So I, ha- I have a bunch of aunts and uncles, a bunch of cousins, and then also sort of people, next door neighbors who would look after me um, after school and, and that type of thing. So um, there was always, I was always surrounded by people who loved and cared for me. And, and you see, there's a picture there with me and my dad. That was actually in my aunt's front yard. That was where my parents had their wedding reception. So, uh, so yeah, so a, a, a lot of love, a lot of family, and, you know, good times from what I can remember. What did your parents do for a living? How did you grow up basically middle class? Your parents, uh, long marriage, still married, still, you know, you talk to on a day-to-day? Yeah, so I, I would say um, the early part, of, of my life, I'd say my, my parents were solidly, you know, working class. Um, as I said, my mom put down roots here first. After they got married, my dad came over. Um, he started working in the mail room uh, from, for, uh, I think, a financial services company. He ended up going to school, getting his degree in accounting. Uh, my mom went to, to school as well, got one, I want to say, in like psychology or something. But my parents ended up working uh, my mom worked for the city government for the vast majority of her career. She actually just retired a couple of weeks ago um, after more than 30 years of service in the city government. And she always tells me she remembers her first day because it was my first day at kindergarten. And um, my dad had you know, a number of jobs. Uh, he's worked the last 20 plus years um, for, for the city as well, um, actually for the transit authority in, in New York. But... Before that, he worked at a number of private sector companies, so IBM, Coca-Cola, Calvin Klein, doing you know various accounting work. So by the time, again, I was a teenager, I would say we were middle class. I don't know if, I never asked my parents how much they made, so I, I don't know whether that would be an accurate assumption. I certainly never went to bed hungry. We lived in our own house. 
um, you know, we took vacations, you know, we would drive down to Virginia or I would go over, you know, overseas to visit cousins and family in Barbados. Um, we certainly were not a, a Jack and Jill crowd, that's for sure. But, uh, but I never wanted for anything. I never felt underprivileged in any way. So yeah, my, you know, my, my upbringing was, was comfortable um, as, as far as I could tell. And my parents are still married. They've been married 40 years. They just made 40 years this past year. And, and I talk to them pretty frequently. Um, so we're, we're still a, a pretty tight knit group. And now that I have kids, um, you know, my, my parents are transitioning into a new role, which is as grandparents, which they love. And I think one of the reasons my mom is so happy to retire, so now she can spend more time with her grandkids. So, um, so th- that was the, you know, that was what it was like in my household. But one of the things I've written about before, before is when people say it takes a village to raise a child, I was raised in, in such a village. So in addition to my blood relatives, we were raised, um, you know, pretty much in the church. Uh, for the latter part of my teenage years, the, the church was called, you know, Grace Church of God. But before that, some of the same families had been in a basement church for years. And these were people that my, my parents were very, very close to. And all of the kids sort of grew up close. So um, I have three very, very close best friends. We're affectionately known as, known as the Four Horsemen, um, taken from the Bible, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. But um, so we run, we've been running together for our entire life, playing church basketball together, got into mischief together, got in trouble together. Um, all of, you know, in most important moments in life, we've always been there for each other, the sort of best, the groomsmen in each other's weddings, that type of thing. So, so my, 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 the people I call family is more than just my blood relatives. So, um, when I got married in 2012 in Texas, because my wife's from Houston, there's probably at least 70, 80 people who came who came down on, on my side um, just to, to, to be a part of everything. So I, I come from a big extended, you know, village. Uh, and, and these are people I care about very, very deeply. Growing up with parents that both as adults work their way through college, was it just an everyday expectation that you would be college educated? And and probably you say you got at least a younger sister. Was that just an expectation of you guys as kids that you're gonna be like mom and daddy? You're gonna get a college degree too? I, I think so. It, it wasn't a um, an expressed expectation probably until I got older. Um, so I was probably one of the first people, you know, in, in, in my friend set and in my family to go away to college. A lot of people went to community college or went to universities in, in the city, you know, in New York. Um, but I ended up going into a gifted program in third grade, leaving my neighborhood um, elementary school and going into a gifted program a little bit further away. And I think my parents, you know, they saw I had some potential. I never worked as hard as I should have or could have throughout my K through 12 education experience. And my dad, who really was the chief education officer in our house, um, basically he, he, he knew 
my rhythm and he knew his script, which was basically the first part of every school year, D's gonna slack off. He's gonna do just enough to get by. And so my dad would ride me pretty hard. He was the type of father who, if I brought home a 90, he would ask, where's the other 10? So we had, my parents set very, very high expectations for both my sister and I. And um, college was one of those things where I, I, I do think it was expected. Cause again, I, I sort of showed myself to have academic leanings. Um, but by the time I left for college, again, I was, I was a good student. I wasn't nearly maximizing my potential in the, in the way that I could have. You know, you mentioned going into that gifted program, and so this is not a question I expected to ask, and so, but anyway, you can handle anything. The, I, <laughs> I've, as an adult, I've come to see the gifted programs as like uh, recruiting grounds for the left, that mm. uh, black kids that get, go to the scholarships to the Catholic schools or get, pushed into the gifted programs and then all say, hey, let's funnel them to this school or this Ivy League school or whatever, that they get the, and so literally, I've come up with some crazy conclusion that I was blessed that I was an average student and mm. somewhat of a lazy high school student, that I was never, only, Athletics, people saw me as gifted, and so in football and basketball and the wrestling team, track and field, I was always recruited. Uh, academics, people are like, oh, Whitlock is smart, but he's just gonna do enough. And so I kind of got left alone, and so I'm what, being in a gifted program and coming from parents that are college educated, did any of, and you said you weren't in the Jack and Jill program, that's another like, recruiting area, I think, for the left. But did, did you ever feel recruited politically or in any way as a young person, either in college or maybe even in high school? Did, did, did that ever happen to you? Yeah, not at all, actually. Um, so I think part of it, Jason, is that, you know, the way education works now, at least from my vantage point looking backwards, it, it's changed, I mean, tremendously since I was a kid. So when I was in the gifted program, I, I was in a school that some people, some elites would call segregated. It's an all black school in Queens. And, mm. you know, the, the gifted program was, was, was all black kids, you know, and, and our teacher was black and everybody, the principal was black. And so it, I, I never, even rem thinking back to that time, and I'm still friends with, with some of the kids that I went to school with at that uh, PS176. But I never got any inclination that we were being indoctrinated. Um, we were being taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, and history. Um, like many kids of my generation, we played Oregon Trail on the computers. I mean, the computers were very rudimentary at that point. It wasn't, it wasn't a MacBook or iPhone. It was just, you know, keyboard, and you bang away at it, and, and you know, you may have had a mouse if you were lucky. But um, I, I never felt like, you know, anyone was pushing their partisan political ideology on us at all. Um, so I, I went to two elementary schools, right? I went to two middle schools because when I finished at my elementary school from third to fifth grade, the junior high that I was zoned for was not 
a school that my parents wanted me to go to, so they put me in Catholic school for two years. And even though I did well academically, it just wasn't a good environment for me socially. I got a bunch of detentions, some of them for, you know, things like haircuts, which would all, in some respects, be sort of foreshadowing for, <laughs> for my future years. But um, it wasn't a good environment for me socially. So they pulled me out of the Catholic school. Uh, I went to a different public school um, for my eighth grade year, which was about an hour and 20 minutes from my house on two buses. And then in high school, I went to um, Benjamin Cardozo High School in Queens, which was about an hour and 40 minutes on two buses from my house. That's the school that produced former CIA director George Tenet for basketball fans, uh, Rafa Alston, Skip to Malu, uh, a couple other pros, Royale Ivy, a couple other, you know, uh, basketball players, Reginald, Veldeni, uh, Carl, um, I can't remember his name, but uh, Carl Winslow from Family Matters went to that high school. So, um, so but even throughout high school, I, I never felt like someone was trying to push their ideology on me. I actually did my senior thesis on the COINTEL Pro program um, that the FBI ran against, you know, various civil rights organizations back in the 60s. So I had freedom to explore. Um, again, I just, I just wasn't applying myself in the way that I should, but I never felt like someone was trying to make me think the things that they thought. Doggy. Mm, mm, mm. That was a mighty fine song you got right there, butter. Thank you, thank you. Well, look here, Uncle Jimmy wants to tell you a story and I'm gonna need you to pipe down for a minute. You think you can do that for me? No problem, no problem, partner. I enjoy a good story. Listen up here, man. America's changed. I'm not sure it's changed for the better, you hear me? I remember a time America's was raised on Western movies. You know, the stories that captured the good old American spirit. Freedom, know-how. Remember back in the day you'd have a brothel filled with loose women? Hey, get a good shot of whiskey and when some bad shit went down, a cowboy would ride into town and set things to right again. Like John Wayne, the searchers. Yeah, I'm more so speaking about like Jamie Foxx in the Django. <laughs> Clint Eastwood, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, that's all right, but I'm, I'm more of a Samuel L. Jackson in the hateful age. Yeah, yeah, G Gary Cooper. Mm, high noon. Oh, that's good. Uncle Jimmy done seen them all. I done seen them all. I done seen the Lone Ranger. I done seen Gunsmoke. Shane. What happened to all our heroes? The good guys. They had the odds stacked up against them. No help. Had to do them all by himself. But he mans up and he beats the bad guys. Seems like we just don't get movies like that no more. We don't know the good guys from the bad guys. Everybody act like they confused. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They sure do. Anyway, look at man. Uncle Jimmy wrote him a little old school Western movie. And man, I'm going to get that fat nephew of mine to get me in front of one of them big studio executives out in Hollywood so I can pitch my movie to him. I do believe that they're going to love it. <laughs> yeah. Jason, he sure is fat. <laughs> Yeah. Don't nobody call Jason Fat but me. Come on. Listen anyway. Anyway, that's my nephew, okay? The movie is my adaptation of Pale Rider. 
You ever see Pale Rider? Yeah, it's a classic. Whew. Clint Eastwood. He was, he was a preacher. Okay, okay. Listen, take a listen, buddy. Listen, this is this is my story. See, it all started out in a frontier town called Kenosha. There was this mean cuss by the name of Blake. Man, he'd been in and out of trouble for years. And then this varmint went and beat up a woman. He sexually assaulted her, and the judge finally issued a warrant for his arrest. Well, when the sheriff and his deputies came a-calling to get him, there was this whole dust-up. And man, just about everybody in town, they had a different story about how it went down, but the long and the short of it is, Blake wasn't about to surrender quietly to the sheriff, okay? Well, and, and he was trying to escape and he jumped in his wagon, but the wagon had kids in the back of it. And also, up under the saddle of the mare, he had a knife. Well, when, when Blake went for that knife, all he heard, pop, pop, pop. Sheriff and the deputies put old Blake down. Now that some bitch Blake didn't die, mind you. Now he darn sure was crippled for life. But let me tell you something, Blake ran with some powerful outlaws. They went by the name of the BLM gang. They got that name BLM because they burned, looted, and murdered all across the West. And the BLM gang, well, they thought that the sheriff and his deputies were wrong and they thought that they shouldn't have shot Blake. So they did what gangs did back in the old west. They, 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 they started terrorizing the whole town to get revenge on the sheriff by burning, looting, and destroying property. And the mayor and the governor was scared out of their minds. They went through the sheriff, the deputies, and in the time, little old Kenosha's greatest need, well, the law skipped town with their tails between their legs. So the BLM reign of terror got worse. Old people got beat up. One livery, they burned down and wiped out over 100 horses and wagons. Now, now this right here is where our hero enters the story. He's a young wannabe gunslinger named Kai. They called him the Pale Rider. Now, man, he might not have even been 18 years old yet, but he had already developed a reputation as being a bit of a good do-gooder. Maybe even a bit of a goody two-shoes, as some might even say, but he was trying to learn medicine and he was trying to help people and he even did rescues down the, 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 the town's local swimming hole. He was a sweet kid, but, 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 butter, he was green as hell around the ears, you might say. Mm -hmm. Now, now some, some say that Kyle had no business even riding up against that BLM gang. But there was another livery asking for help just down the street from, from the other one, as a matter of fact, that had just been torched. Well, when the sun fell, another night of BLM burning and looting, it commenced. Well, the pale rider grabbed his gun and stood out in front of that livery like a natural born man. This one BLM, BLM member, name was Rosenbach. Nasty varmint. 
child molester. He came at Pale Rider first, tried to take Kyle's gun from him. Next thing you know, all you hear, bah, bah, bah. Young Kyle stood his ground. Rosenball went down. Hit him right between the eyes. Well now, old Kyle was in for it then. The whole BLM gang was charging at him, chasing him down the street. He's surrounded. He's taking blows one after another. One BLM guy even jump kick Kyle. Pow! Son of a bitch guy named Hubert. Now he was a domestic abuser. Well, he takes a plank from a buckboard and starts wailing on Kyle like he's crazy. Well, then he starts trying to take Kyle's gun. Next thing you know, you hit back. Hell Rider strikes again. Goodbye, Hubert. Then we had one final BLM thug. His name was Gage. He's a hard drinking gunslinger. He too had been in and out of jail and he comes at Kyle, appointing his six-shooter right at our hero. Well, he looks at Pell, looks like our hero Pell Rider's finished. And somehow or another, old Kyle gets the drop on Gage. Next thing you know, bang! Down goes Gage! Down goes Gage! The final outlaw. The Pell Rider then saddled up his horse, rode out of town, he went and turned himself in to the next marshal in the next town. You know, some people blamed him for crossing state lines, but when he went to trial, the jury set him free. Peace was restored to Kenosha. What you think about that there, butter? It makes me think of a little song. The Pale Rider rode into town good folks were in peril and buildings burned down armed with his honor and the patriot's creed he stared down the barrel and defended the streets some called him an outlaw some called him a shame Some called him a hero As they hauled Kyle away That's beautiful, bud. That's beautiful. It's funny to hear, because I got a lot of friends from New York and they talk about going to a school an hour away from their home or an hour and a half away, <laughs> and it just blows my mind. I never went to a school that I could not walk to. Now, Stony Brook yeah. Junior High would have been a bit of a, a, a long walk, but I could have walked it. The, you know, but my elementary schools, both when I went to public school 83 and Lakeside Elementary, man, I'm talking about five minute walks. My high school, six minute walk. It was just behind Lakeside Elementary School. Uh, and, and so I, I, I listened and I'm like, wow, what a, that seems like such a burden on education to have to travel that far just to go to school. Um, and you know, I don't really know if I have a, a, a great point or even great question 
coming off that, but your parents and your political point of view, and, and I, mm -hmm. I even somewhat hesitate to call it a political point of view, but your conservative approach to life, where did that come from? Is that just a reflection of your parents' values, the values you found in the church? Does, do you have a friend base that all thinks like you? Because I think for a lot of us in the black community, uh, you know, everybody kind of buys into a more progressive or liberal worldview. And so mm. are you an outside thinker in, within your family and friend structure? <laughs> now I am. Um, but, but actually, not, not really. Um, I, I'd say this, right? I grew up in a city that was overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, I only remember one Republican mayor, Rudy Giuliani, right? And, and not, he was an outlier. So New York City is a very liberal city. But I grew up with um, parents who had traditional values. I grew up in the church. So in terms of what I was being taught by the people around me, those values would be considered conservative now. They were just normal back then, right? So I remember when me and my friends we were in Sunday school, we had one of the you know, older brothers who was teaching it. And I, I always remember when he, he told us um, that a man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. And that's the word he would use. And like that, that stuck with us because we, so we, thankfully me and my, my three best friends, uh, all our parents are still married, all grew up with our dads in the house. Um, for, for the most part, all of our families, we went to the same church. So we were getting the same values sort of being, um, you know, reinforced regardless of whose, whose house we were going to. Um, so that's how all the adults in my life thought. Um, and that's how all of us grew up. It wasn't, if, if any of us came in there with um, pink hair looking like a lip, one of the libs of, of TikTok, they would have looked at us strange. Or if we told them we're going to get an apartment with our girlfriend, right? Not our wife, but we're, we're going to get an apartment with our girlfriend. They would have said, y'all can't be shacking up like that. So that, that's the that's the environment I grew up in. Now, people still, again, more than likely going to vote for a Democratic candidate, but even the political parties had different values back then. So um, now it's a little bit different. Now people will say, well, you know, you sound so conservative, but my response to them is I basically preach the things that you all practice. It's just for some reason you all have a difficulty talking about it. Um, but the people who had the most impact on my life growing up, uh, and again, I'm, I'm very thankful that that included a number of uh, adult males, my friends, fathers, and other guys in the church, most of whom were tradesmen, carpenters, electricians, plumbers. Um, so guys who work with their hands, guys who would take us on jobs to work with our hands or give us a few sledgehammers when we needed work done at the church or needed a building to be demolished because that's what teenage boys are good at doing. And they would say, look, if you guys tear up this building, you know, break up these tubs and bring out some, uh, some heaters, We'll feed you some mac and cheese and some rice and peas and some oxtail. And we say, oh, that sounds good. So that, that's, that's sort of where I learned uh, a work ethic, the, the, the sort of seeds of a worldview. We were told very clearly that 
anyone who does not work does not eat. So that inspired us to work because when you got hungry, you'd say to yourself, well, I, I need to do something to earn my keep. So yeah, I, I'd say even if, you know, my, my parents and my friends' parents are not, are not, you know, politically conservative per se, more importantly, that's the way that they live their lives. How about, and a, well, we're not gonna name them, but how about the friends you grew up with that the four horsemen? Are you an outside thinker <laughs> to them? No, not at all. There's one of them, and I won't name him, right? But he knows who he is. When he sees this, he's gonna know who I'm talking about. <laughs> he's the one in the group that, that fakes like he's a liberal. But anytime, you know, cause we have a group chat, we talk all the time. We talk multiple times a day. We, we exchange messages multiple times a day. He'll say one thing, right? So I'll give you a quick example. Last year, when, you know, you had the protests and then you had riots and then you had looting, and you had burning um, after George Floyd's death, when videos would pass around and it would show people, you know, burning stuff up and throwing rocks through windows, this one friend would say, yeah, burn it, burn it down. And then I would say, well, how'd you feel if they, if they threw a Molotov cocktail through your car? So, oh, I would, not my car, just stop at the top of the block. Don't come all the way down to my house. So he, was, he says stuff like that, but when it comes down to it, for the most part, we are in the same ballpark when it comes to our values because three of us are married. Um, between the four of us, we have eight children. Um, and, you know, all of, all of us are working and, and you know, self-supporting. And, you know, we're the type of guys who we now get to enjoy seeing our parents retire and being able to do things for them. So none of my friends are what you would describe as actually liberal, even though one of them fakes like he is. What did you go to college for? What did you plan to be uh, originally? And, and you know, I know you're kind of just dabbling your toe in being this public intellectual, but mm -hmm. what did you go to college to do? What, what was your vision for your life? So I actually went to college to study computer engineering. So um, when I was in high school, I did like a pre-law track, which I thought felt right to me. Um, I, I spent a good part of my teenage years debating older people, pastors, deacons, aunts, uncles, that type of thing, about all different types of issues. And my friends and I, we would, we would talk, even at that point, we would talk about the impact, the cultural impact that hip hop had on our community, and at, at that time we were teenagers, um, and we were in the midst of it, and, but we could already see how it would impact people's sort of thoughts and, and behaviors. So I went, I went to college for computer engineering. Um, I was a decent engineer, but I've always been a good problem solver, and engineering worked for me because I have a very linear mind. Um, so I, I think about things in terms of straight lines. That's part of the reason that um, in the work that I do now, sort of the public intellectual space, I get so aggravated because people who change terms, who use weasel words and euphemisms, people who will deflect from arguments, those are all, I, I just see that as a bunch of circles being scribbled on a piece of paper. Like I, I like things that are linear and straightforward. So I studied engineering, but I also, I took classes in psychology and sociology and Africana studies. 
Um, and I graduated, you know, solid 3.2 GPA. I wanted to be a consultant. Um, I applied to a number of different positions after college. I didn't get any jobs. I ended up going back to New York. Um, nothing was working there. I went back to Pittsburgh. I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I thought I was going to get a job doing marketing. That ended up being a job to sell uh, Ginsu knives door to door. So I ended up doing something else and ended up working for a local nonprofit, making about seven bucks an hour. And it was it was a good opportunity. You know, I had a little apartment, about 400 square feet, a room, you know, including a bedroom with, with one window. And I, I just, I did that, you know, while I looked for other positions. But it was a solid three years after I graduated that I, I got my first job in which I was salaried that had benefits. And in between that time, I ended up doing temp work for a temp company in New York. When I left Pittsburgh and came back to New York, uh, I worked for Saks Fifth Avenue. I was basically like a stock boy, but it was cool because I got to wear a suit. Um, and But the, the low point was when, and, and any anyone watching this who has like teenage daughters would, would notice, I worked for a company that I made wholesale, it was a wholesaler um, for products that you would buy at Claire's. So me with my computer engineering degree, I was sticking labels on little chapsticks that you sell to little girls for $2.50. And you know, I did that for a number of months and that was really my low point. And I was questioning, man, you know, I was like, God, what, what is going on? I can't, I can't get any opportunities. I was trying my best, I was trying my hardest. And um, finally something broke for me. I got a job uh, leasing apartments in DC um, back in around 07. I got the, I went to a job fair to get the job. I came back to New York. I was getting my car inspected. They told me you, you got the job. I, I left either that day or the next morning. And I came down to DC and I was leasing apartments. And that's when I met someone who was gonna be starting with the city I started a job with the city in the technology office, and um, he said, "Hey, we're having a job fair, and you should come. You should come through." And I went through and ended up landing a job with uh, with the city government. So that that opened a new chapter in my life. And at the same time, um, I started I started my job in October of '07. I started grad school at George Washington University doing a master's in public policy. Uh, in 08, January 08. So it just, it worked out perfectly that I was already in the city that I was gonna be starting school at, so. So I'm hearing engineering, pre-law, you know, jobs at Saks Fifth Avenue and McDonald's or whatever. Where did you learn to write? I, I, I've been <laughs> in this business a long time and I've been mm. editing people's work for a significant part of the last decade, maybe even a little bit longer. And I'm shocked at how well you write. I know writers that have had long writing careers that I've had to edit their work and they can't write at your level. How did you learn that? Honestly, and I know it sounds cliche, but I, I have to attribute it to just a, a God-given ability um, I wasn't even the most voracious reader as a kid. I read the Hardy Boys and that was about it. Um, 
during college, I didn't read any books that weren't related to school. And actually, the first thing I read when I finished college was Why Black People Tend to Shout by Ralph Wiley. And Ralph Wiley, reading that book and the, the two subsequent uh, books that came after that, really got me to thinking about, you know, public commentary. Obviously, I was ye- years away from that, but it changed my mind in terms of, you know, maybe seeing myself doing something similar. I've always been interested in issues of race um, and culture, but um, I-, I think the writing just was, honestly, it's just a, it's a natural thing that comes to me. But because for me, it's the writing comes after the first step, which is the thinking. And as I said, I'm a very linear thinker. So um, when I when I sit down to articulate a thought, the two the two pieces have to connect. And this is maybe where the engineering and the math background come come in, because the straight the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So when I write something, the lines have to connect. And if they don't, I, I just go back to the drawing board. Um, but from there, honestly, a lot of it, I just pick, I just pick up stuff from people. I, I listen intently to what people say. Whenever someone uses a word I don't know, I will take it down. I actually have a, a spreadsheet with a bunch of words that I didn't know. I'll look it up and I'll say, okay, I can see myself incorporating that. Um, I, 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 I look at people's sort of technical writing in terms of how they structure arguments. Um, I'm not a particularly flowery person when it comes to prose. I would never write a, a fiction book because it would be boring. But um, just from reading other people, I, I picked up tips and tricks on how to um, structure an argument. And then from there, a lot of it, again, is just there's certain things that I've just refined over the years, my own set of arguments over the years, over and over and over again. And then when I just sit down to to write them, I just put them on paper. And um, interestingly enough, before I started writing for The Blaze, uh, my writing timeline, I would measure in weeks at least. So it would be weeks in best case scenario from the time I had an idea to the time I fully fleshed it out. But now I'm able to compress my timeline now down into hours. Um, and part of that is just the repetition. So just like any anything else that a person does, if you commit yourself to doing something, you'll get better at it. But I, I give the vast majority of that credit to to God for giving me at least one ability, right? My three-pointer wasn't there. My defense was good, right? There's other things I wasn't going to be able to do from based on physical limitations. Um, singing voice, not there. Not two left feet, but you know, dancing, limitations. But I've, I've always been able to think clearly um, and I've always been, you know, able to articulate myself relatively clearly and just gotten better at it just from pure repetition. All right, so I'm gonna ask you to do something that's gonna be difficult. I need you to okay. condense this down to 90 seconds, two minutes, and we're, we're gonna close on this. What do you want to accomplish? What message are you trying to get across as a public intellectual? Hmm. What I would like to accomplish is um, I would like that when I leave this stage that the work that I've done has bent the curve 
of sort of the arc of the black community back in a more positive direction. I would like to, to highlight the importance of, of family and faith um, and marriage and the beauty of children. Um, I would like to, 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 to use my talents in a way that gives the next generation, you know, something to look forward to other than feeling like they can't do anything because they are, you know, being oppressed. So I, I feel like everything to this point has been preparing me for this moment. And my, my hope is that in many respects, even if I am not able to shift the Overton window in terms of public commentary, particularly as it relates to race, class and culture, if I can just pry that joker open for a couple of minutes and let some air in, maybe we'll catch a strong breeze and, and we as a people, not just, not just black, but as Americans, will start to think about some of these issues uh, a lot differently. Merry Christmas, Delano. Uh, thank you for joining the Fearless Army. You've been a blessing. Thank you. Uh, to the project and myself. Uh, happy holidays. Uh, enjoy your Same family. You, All right, I think I hear tomorrow playing. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation, we all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone, I'm breaking my back for freedom. Blessed, we are living, get back, we are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be free.